VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. And it is Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. Uh, we're hoping to uh, hear his mellifluous tones. <laughs> I can't speak this morning um, in the not too distant future so stay tuned for that but in the meantime uh, you've got uh, me for the morning well the big news lots of big news of course Uh, the sale of 43 pieces of land and properties in the metro region and St. Mary's Bay owned by the Roman Catholic Church has been approved by the courts the properties are being sold off of course to settle sexual abuse claims from the former Mount Cashel orphanage what it means for the future of some of these properties remains to be seen. Uh, if you look down through the list, and it's linked to vocm.com, some of the purchase, uh, some of the properties have been purchased by numbered companies or real estate firms acting on behalf of private buyers. While some look like they might be companies that are formed by parishioners interested in keeping the church properties or, uh, you know, heritage groups or the like. Well, I'd like to hear from some of those buyers and how they feel the process is gone and what their plans are for these properties formerly owned by the church. And it has a big impact. It has a big impact on uh, ordinary people. And of course, uh, the biggest impact, I suppose, arguably, or one of the bigger impacts will be uh, decided on in November when the fate of school properties on RC church-owned land will be determined. Of course, education in Newfoundland and Labrador was the responsibility of the churches for decades in Newfoundland and Labrador, the churches, uh, the various denominations, were the ones that uh, brought teachers over and uh, set up schools, and that's why we had this denominational education system, because essentially all the different denominations had their own uh, school properties. And of course, in the metro region, the vast majority of those were run by the Roman Catholic Church. So it will be significant whatever happens to these school properties. Now, it's, there's you know, lots of caveats in this, and many people have said, and it's, it, you know, the, the concern, I suppose, is what will happen to these properties. But as long as they're run as schools, they should be fine. But still, if there's money still owed and um, obligations that have to be met there, they're are some pretty serious questions and concerns raised about that. So I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Um, I'd like to hear from people who are involved in the process, people who feel like maybe this has all been downloaded on the parishes, uh, the Roman Catholic Church globally, one of the richest um, entities in the world, uh, and a lot of people in, you know, the lowly churches, the lowly church communities feel a little hard done by on this. Now, uh, to a person, I haven't heard anyone say that um, the money owed to the victims of Mount Cashel should not be paid. I have not heard that. Everybody agrees that this is something that has to be done. 
But uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, we had a little bit of rain <laughs> overnight. In some cases, a lot of rain. I know there's some areas that had some pretty wild and woolly thunderstorms in some areas, but uh, much needed rain in a lot of areas. Uh, fire, forest fire indices on the island portion of the province yesterday anyway in the extreme zone. And as we know, that uh, uh, helped to spark or helped to fan the flames of some uh, pretty significant forest fires in and around the island, not the least of which was the one out by CBS, uh, many more besides. Uh, if you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. I see a um, couple of stories in the news today re- involving more ATV crashes. And it surprises me that these kinds of things continue to happen. And while the vast majority, I mean the vast majority, of people who own ATVs or or use ATVs and dirt bikes are responsible. You never hear tell of them. (laughs) They they do their own thing, no issues, having great time, uh, outdoors, involved in recreation and the like. Everything is great. But occasionally you get these odd people who are misbehaving, irresponsible, and they're the ones that cause some problems. I was in a neighborhood just last week, as a matter of fact, taking in a little baseball game, and uh, we were sitting on the uh, benches there. And uh, yeah, here you go. You can hear it in the distance. You know, that that, that sound. <laughs> People make fun of me for making the sounds, but that's, uh, that's how it sounds. And lo and behold, here it comes up the road, one wheel. <laughs> and everybody that was in my company at the time, we all said, you know, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, there it is, uh, in a busy neighborhood on one wheel so these are the things you remember you don't remember the people who are quietly going about their business going on the trails and enjoying themselves it's the problem um, situations that you hear about but you know is it still a problem in your area I know RNC and RCMP have been doing their level best to crack down on these things they can't chase them of course that causes a danger But they do ask people to collect as much information as possible so they can do the follow-up. And, you know, I often hear people say, sure, why you call the police? They're not going to do anything anyway. It's because they have different ways of doing things. It's not always visible. Um, So collect as much information as you can. But is it a problem in your area? I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. And, of course, uh, whenever we have these crashes and, and situations where people end up getting injured, it's always a serious concern because it could be somebody belong to you. Well, the Bonavista ER is closed again. Whitburn ER is closed. Are you encountering any problems getting the health care you need? Last week we had reports that the um, ER at the Health Sciences Center was filled to overflowing, filled to bursting, people sitting on the floors, people, and I don't know if this is true or not, but people being told, you know, unless it's life and death, the chances of you getting in here today are slim to none. I'd like to hear what people have to say about that, what your kind of experiences are with the healthcare system and what you think the solutions might be. By all means, do give us a call. Well, the Urban Indigenous Coalition First Voice has released a draft report on what they call systemic problems in policing with what they call little to no accountability. 
The report says the RNC Act requires a police complaint to be made within six months of the incident, but there's no reciprocal timeline or burden on the RNC's chief of police to address the complaint. In the case of the RCMP, it took so long for complaints to be addressed that in some cases, the complaints are already passed away or the officer involved had already retired. So what kind of, you know, um, repercussions are there in those kinds of circumstances? The draft report says in the most egregious example involving the RNC, a St. John's man still did not have a decision on his complaint seven years after filing it with the police complaint commission. It's a serious issue. If you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. They also raised the whole idea of police, investigating police, uh, which they say shouldn't be done. And they want greater oversight, even though we do have uh, CERT NL in Newfoundland and Labrador today. Um, that said, I should say that some of the incidents that I've witnessed, and I witnessed one this weekend. I witnessed an incident this past weekend involving an RNC officer who was called to a neighborhood uh, because somebody was causing a little bit of a, a stir in the early morning hours and uh, acting aggressively and and the like, a little bit off-putting, a little bit frightening, I should say. And um, a, a police officer arrived on the scene and um, his demeanor uh, was such that the person almost calmed down Immediately, I don't know if it was because of the, the, of the police presence or the manner in which uh, this officer was talking to this person. Uh, but uh, he effectively diffused that situation. Um, he was leaning against his car, arms crossed, just casually speaking to the person in question and uh, managed to resolve it um, from what I could see rather quickly and efficiently um, in what was uh, a quickly escalating kind of situation. So um, that was something I witnessed, and I've seen a couple of other incidents in uh, hospital settings where all staff, right from hospital to law enforcement, have um, been absolutely... Uh, I can't explain it. How do I explain it? Absolutely um, shown great compassion uh, towards somebody who is obviously in the midst of a, uh, a, a serious crisis. So um, some things are changing. That's encouraging. But of course, there's always room for improvement. And if you have any thoughts on that, I'd like to hear what you have to say. We have a couple of calls in the lineup. Nice to see. And we'd like to hear from you just because I raise these things. These are some of the things that are in the news or top of mind. Doesn't mean to say that that's what we're going to stick to. Let's, uh, let's hear what you have to say. If you've been sitting around thinking, why hasn't anybody raised this before? Give us a call. <laughs> Now's your chance to do so. We'll, we'll talk to you in just a few moments. And we're back. And we're going to go now to um, Usain Dunn, line three. Um, line three. Oops. What did I just do? Hello? Oops, they're gone. Uh, what's going on? Everybody's dropping. All right, <laughs> dropping like flies. We're going to go now to Paul Lane. You're on the air. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Um, I uh, been been uh, out of the scene for a little while. I, I took my first uh, the family vacation now in three years. Of course, COVID put a damper on all that, so it was nice to get away and get a little break. But 
I'm uh, back. I, I was following what's been going on the last couple of weeks or so, and uh, so uh, I have a fear of on my chest. I want to offload some of it at least this morning. Well, start offloading. Um, okay. So, first of all, um, I, I've certainly invested a fair amount of time and effort into uh, this whole issue around the whistleblower report um, and so on at Elections Newfoundland Labrador. And uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, again, this is just my my opinion and people will agree or they will disagree but uh, uh, I was disappointed not in the fact that uh, that Judge Derek Green um, uh, I guess has been uh, commissioned by the uh, House Assembly Management Commission to uh, to do a further review and nothing against uh, Chief Justice Green I have all the respect in the world for the man uh, but I, I really have to question the the, the need for for doing it we have an independent officer of the house assembly that being the citizens representative uh, i've met with him on a number of occasions i certainly believe him to be a very competent uh, individual very ethical uh it's my understanding that uh, this investigation that took place the whistleblower report that uh, it was done over several months there's a very extensive report uh, with a number of recommendations, as I understand it, and why the uh, House Assembly Management Commission has decided to uh, delay this any further uh, and, and now have to bring in another independent person to do a review of an, of an already independent report. Um, I just don't understand the logic in it. Um, it, it could the, it be, uh, I mean, yes, the whole concept of an independent review of an independent report seems on the surface to be kind of ridiculous, but could it be does. because of the potential ramifications of this? Well, uh, you know, again, I don't know. Part of the problem we have, of course, is that uh, we don't have any of the information. I, I mean, uh, since day one, uh, you know, uh, government and the Speaker's office attempted to bury this. They did bury it for like three months. Uh, they denied that the report even exists, even though that uh, certainly I knew from people who were contacting me that it did indeed exist. Uh, the Premier came out and said that, uh, you know, he was going to have the report, um, you know, redacted and it was going to be released to the public. Not sure that he even really had the authority to do that because based on the legislation that was always supposed to go to the management commission it should have went there day one not three months later but at the end of the day he said the report would be released to the public we still haven't seen it so you know we're really surmising what's in that report and whether you know what the rationale was but i i feel that the management commission at the very least should have provided some solid rationale to the public and certainly to members of the House, um, all members of the House, as to why this is being delayed, why the need to do an independent review of an independent review. And to me, it just feels like, uh, you know, we're just kicking the can down the road, delaying things. I, I understand the uh, chief electoral officer. That's my understanding now is uh, his term is up sometime early in the fall anyway. I don't know if there's some strategy to... Uh, get us to that point and then he moves on and then we say well not to see here folks he's moved on and let's forget about it i can tell you i won't be forgetting about it uh i also have a big issue with the fact that the speaker uh chairs the management commission uh i i had requested to the commission and uh, to the speaker that he um would recuse himself 
from this discussion, given the fact that, you know, in my view, his actions are part of the problem. And the fact that this report was buried as long as it is, and now he's cheering uh, that commission, I felt the deputy speaker should have stepped in and chaired, it, chaired the commission for that particular issue. That didn't happen. So, uh, you know, I have a number of concerns. I, I still, uh, even in the re, even in the terms of reference that's been given to Chief Justice Green, one of the things that is absent from that is for him to take uh, to make any commentary or, um, you know, on the fact that the report was held onto for as long as it was which, to my mind, was definitely not within the spirit of the legislation. And that's a question that also needs to be brought to the forefront, and I will be bringing it in the House Assembly whenever we do see it. Um, there's two issues, to my mind. There's one issue is the actual contents of the report itself, the fact that, uh, you know, of everything that allegedly went on. But then the other piece, which is a very, very important piece to me as well, is the fact that, the speaker uh, office would have been aware of this report for some three months, knowing everything that has gone on, knowing that there were people at Elections Newfoundland and Labrador that's, you know, uh, allegedly working in a toxic work environment, and just to sit on it and do nothing about it. That in itself is a significant issue, and that's not going to be part of Chief Justice Green. Brains, uh, review. No, indeed. And uh, have we sure seen a situation? Pardon me. Have we seen a situation like that before, uh, where you know the 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 speaker's actions are, are 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 put into question like this, and and how the speaker can be more publicly answerable to you know this kind of a circumstance? Well, I haven't seen it in my time, uh, to be honest with you. But it's definitely has to be uh, questioned. Um, you know, clearly, clearly, one of the issue, one of the problems we have, and this is something because I filed my own complaint, as I told you when we spoke before, to the citizens' rep regarding the speaker's actions. And one of the problems we got is with the legislation itself. The legislation, the legislation, does um, have a clear path in terms of the actions that would be taken by the speaker, or the actions that could be taken by the speaker once he received that report. The problem we have is that. While I believe the spirit and intent and and, and, and applying the, I'll, I'll call it the average person, the normal person test to it as to what, you know, what would be a reasonable approach for anyone to take, I believe anyone could, would conclude that he would, re, would have received the report, uh, taken a day or two or maybe a week to review it, and at that point in time, then forward it to the Management Commission. The problem is, is that there are no timelines actually prescribed in the legislation. It says that he has these options to do it. It doesn't say, you know, he must do it within a week, within a month, within two months, within three months. Technically, he could hold on to it for two years. Uh, you know, uh, we know that would be wrong, but the legislation doesn't say he has to do it within a certain time frame. So one of the things I've asked the citizens rep to do uh, in the investigation that I've asked him to launch into this is uh, to make recommendations for changes to the House Assembly uh, Integrity, Accountability and uh, uh, Act uh, to uh, make it more prescriptive so that there are no loopholes, there are no ways for anybody to weasel out of their responsibilities and that they have strict timelines in place uh, to deal with these matters. Uh, uh, Paul, we uh, we have a pretty uh, busy morning here uh, shaping up. I, I do appreciate your time. Um, uh, I'm no doubt we'll be talking about this for some time to come. I really appreciate your time. 
No problem, Linda, and, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, certainly next week I uh, want to call in and uh, talk about our uh, health care system. And, uh, you know, I, again, I've been following that and been following this um, sudden awakening uh, by the Premier's office as to the seriousness of what's going on. And uh, I want to talk about all of the warnings that were given to the Premier, uh, by myself, by other members of the opposition for months and months, uh, and to the Minister that were totally ignored. And now it's all coming to light through the media and through other sources. And, um, you know, the fact that all of a sudden, you know, we're trying to uh, give this impression that, you know, we're we're taking action, we're really concerned, but almost giving the impression that uh, this is all new stuff when the, this has been going on for months and months and they were well aware of it, but they sat on their hands, did nothing, and now they're scrambling. So we'll be talking about that next week. But thank no you doubt. Time. Paul, uh, thank you. All the very best. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to go now to James. You're on the air. Hi, uh, sorry, this is going to be a quick call here. I'm, yeah. uh, I don't got much time. But, uh, yeah, they just told me about the police. Uh, one was about the police accountability. My question is, who's going to hold them accountable? Uh, our government is just as corrupt as our, our, our police force. Uh, and, uh, and, then when, uh, and, uh, and then when it comes to the, the medical association, same thing. Or, sorry, our medical or health care system is the same thing. I mean, I wouldn't even go to the hospital after the last two years. I don't trust half of our doctors. I think most of our doctors are... Our order followers, just like our police, they they can't think uh, they can't think for themselves, and and they're too scared to lose their their degrees to go against the the system, and then it puts all of the public in harm's way because now we're getting force-fed drugs that we don't want, or or, or medicate or or injections that the majority of the population don't want, but yet the media is saying that they did when they didn't. So I mean, who who's going to hold the police accountable when our, the entire system has to be accountable? The entire system has to be. Uh, basically broke down and, re- and rebuilt because it's all it's all corrupt everything it's it's it, it, there's so much corruption that there's no way of fixing it, in my opinion okay but, so uh, but yeah. this is not the purpose of your call uh sorry what do you mean uh, i understand you were going to talk about atvs oh no i well no there's a few other things i heard i heard you mention that the guy with the atv i mean uh there's so much there's so much crime going on uh, like major crime going on i mean guy pulling a wheelie like let 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 the young let, let the young kids have fun i mean big deal the kid pulls a wheelie falls off that's his own fault right i mean it's not gonna hurt nobody else it's his own fault we got more we, we got bigger fish to fry than a kid pulling a wheelie up the dirt uh, uh, up the road but uh, anyways uh, uh i gotta go thank you have a good all day. right bye. thanks james bye uh we're gonna go now to um the mha for exploits uh pleeman forcey hello Good morning. How are you this morning? Good, Linda. Linda, my call this morning, of course, is uh, is uh, regarding the forest fire season and the extreme uh, weather index that we're having, and uh, we can see it certainly, uh, uh, you know, in the in the past couple of days over the weekend. Um, the uh, forest fire season, of course, started uh, from uh, May first to September thirtieth, and of course, the hot and dry weather we are having recently are creating extreme you know risk of forest fires which have to have the have the potential to spread very quickly and cause a lot of damage most recently certainly we've heard of the uh, forest fire in uh, cbs which caused uh, a lot of stress and anxiety on residents so you know just tense moments in botwood too i heard yes there was you know uh, yesterday uh, only yesterday uh, there was a small forest fire there and and i'd like to thank the uh, the uh, volunteer fire departments you know for their for their quick action on that they uh, they contained that very quickly and uh, and eliminated it and 
and uh, I'd just like to thank them and all the fire departments across the uh, across the province for for what they do in regards to forest fires. They uh, handle it quickly, and I must say uh, the department the department has been. Uh, Quick acting on the uh, on the forest fire situations, you know all the crews from the department, water bombers and forest fire crews, they've been uh, acting pretty quickly on those fires, which is uh, which is great to see. Absolutely. So uh, so yeah, it's uh, so I like to you know to, to make everyone aware and encourage everyone to uh, to be careful, you know, with open fires, especially uh, this time of year. Everything is dry, extreme conditions. The weather index uh, is high. It's 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 creating a lot of uh, you know, a lot of anxieties out there for people who's at the fires and that sort of stuff, and it can cause a lot of damage. So we need to be extra, extra careful when we're out around the, uh, especially with fires this this time of year. So, uh, yeah, I look for everyone to, uh, to to pay attention to that stuff. Did you have any rain out your way? I know there was some rain in Gander and and east, um, but did you did you get any of that? We had some rain overnight. Yeah, we had uh, much welcome rain actually because the, the dry season around here is really, really. Uh, Really, really bad. So we did have some uh, last night, and we're. I think there's some uh, some continuing for the, for tonight again and, and tomorrow, which which is really welcome because the ground uh, the ground around here right now is it's almost crisp. You know, you can you can hear it under your feet when you're walking. So uh, uh, much welcome rain would be anticipated rain would be welcome right now, and uh, to keep that uh, index down. Indeed, and it's a wonder, you know, that uh, we haven't seen more in the way of uh, some of these devastating fires. Uh, so, uh, well done, though, on all the crews who are quick to respond. It is, Linda. I mean, say it's, uh, you know, we are fortunate right now that we haven't had a uh, really major, major forest fire, especially here in the central area. You know, we got a lot of, uh, we got a lot of dry conditions and, uh, you know, uh, foliage is uh, is really dry and uh, we got a lot of forest here. So uh, we need to save our forest. We need that for industry and other reasons, of course, for the uh, wildlife habitat. Uh, so it's, uh, so we need to keep that uh, really safe, keep our conditions, uh, you know, safe so that, uh, everyone enjoys it so uh, yeah so kudos to the staff and the, and the volunteer fire departments that have been doing their work and uh, you know you can also report a forest fire forest fire if you see it you know by calling 1-866-709-FIRE that's 3473 so anyone uh, you know we need everyone to take uh, take awareness of this and and do, do our own actions Pleman, uh, I'll ask you this question uh, because we haven't heard much from your region. But how how are things with the healthcare system? Any any closures or delays? Well, healthcare system, the emergency system. And well, I talked to you last last week, I think, or the week before, and the healthcare system is you know it's it's outrageous. You know, the emergency units here are are certainly uh, overcrowded. Uh, people in hallways. Uh, they're even calling the uh, going to emergencies now to ju- just get prescriptions, and uh, you know that's overloading our, our uh, regional healthcare system here in uh, Central Newfoundland, you know, especially Grand Falls Windsor Hospital up there. And people are driving long distances uh, for uh, for to get to emergency units. You know, a lot of a lot of closures and diversions. We hear it all the time. We heard it again last week, and I and I know it's, I know it's across the province, but. You know, uh, the new minister has got to come in and take some quick action to this, and uh, we need some relief of the uh, of the emergency units of the healthcare system. 
Indeed, and, and now we have some uh, new arrivals in the province. We've been hearing uh, a lot lately. In fact, on uh, Open Line last week, we heard from a Ukrainian doctor who specializes in uh, general practice, and she says, you know, in order for me to get certified here in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's going to take years. Um, and she wants to practice now. She wants to help uh, people now. And uh, she's frustrated with the process. Um, how do you think that can be resolved? Well, the minister and the, uh, and the healthcare system has got to sit down with those people and uh, and relax some of the uh, some of the restrictions that are there, so that we can get uh, people in our system and get them uh, working in 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 the hospitals and uh, and, to tr- and to get uh, people treated. We need to use more locums. We need uh, nurse practitioner practitioners. We need to. Uh, there's all counts. You know, they've had seven years to come up with those ideas, Linda, and uh, and there was a failure from the previous minister to get this done. Clemen Forsey, we have to leave it there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll be back right after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And we're back. We're going to go now to Tom Davis. You're on the air. Hi, Tom. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you. How about yourself? Good, good. I want to start off with a couple of uh, bouquets. City of St. John's, I, I heard uh, our QP representative on last week saying that the city was, they thought they had a deal done, and uh, apparently the city came back, and uh, they're renegotiating. So I hope that's a harbinger of reality sifting into the minds of our counselors and the managers down there. Um, I know Mount Pearl's going through a challenging time now, and I'm, but I did hear the mayor on there, and... Uh, they're trying to work towards a resolution. One of the things I just want to keep driving home, because in the language of um, of the uh, union leadership, they keep calling every you know us the taxpayer. They keep referring to this magical employer, Eastern Health, or the City of Mount Pearl, or whatever else. We are the employers. We whenever anybody says whenever a, a public service union refers to the employer, everybody needs to realize they're talking about each one of us. So I just want to drive that home. Um, I also want to remind everybody that um, the managers also receive, in most cases, the exact same raises that they're negotiating with the uh, public service unions. And a lot of times those managers are very, very well paid, especially when you're into the municipalities. And so that that also needs to be remembered. It's kind of a bit of a conflict of interest. It's kind of like letting the oil companies manage climate change. But and they also benefits as well the same thing. So I just want to want to just keep driving that home because we're at this very difficult time when we have compensation and benefits uh, situations which are not sustainable for the uh, for the taxpayers, especially those who are fixed income or people who aren't able to somehow plug into. Uh, offsetting the cost of living increases. Certainly, and uh, you know, people in the in the private realm as well know that you know if uh, salaries keep going up, uh, then something's got to give. Right, and, and you know, also important to also really realize is that the pensions and the earlier retirement than a lot of people in the private sector can even dream of. Um, with the uh, demographic situation where we're an aging population, as a lot of these people retire and there's not as many people to fill roles and to pay the taxes that sustain uh, a lot of those uh, benefits and pensions, that's also a big challenge. So, so, you know, all these things are all coming together in a perfect storm and uh, ignoring them is not going to fix them. And jumping over to perfect storms, uh, I just also want to throw a bouquet out to uh, federal provincial governments 
and uh, Newfoundland Power and Newfoundland Labrador Hydro for opening up. Uh, they announced there last week. Jennifer Williams was uh, who is the uh, CEO of Newfoundland Hydro, uh, announcing more charging stations. You know, in her in her her speeches, you know, she really did a great job of explaining the fact that it, your home becomes your gas station, and uh, ninety percent plus will be done at home. In my case, it's probably ninety nine percent, and for a lot of people, it is that. But for people who have to travel long distances, and then you know these tra- these charging stations, which are in all the national parks, a lot of private businesses have them now. A lot of municipalities are installing them at their depots. So that's really positive. And she said that, you know, they've offset 90 tons of CO2, which is which is great. It's laudable. However, uh, this is where the collective action comes in, because as a as a province, we're one of the highest emitting jurisdictions in the entire world at over 21 tons per capita. That works out to be 20 billion pounds of CO2 a year, not counting all the other greenhouse gases that we would emit. And, is you know, uh, Holyrood it, still, uh, uh, you know, a huge contributing factor there? Because that, you know, traditionally always was the biggest reason for that. Well, um, our oil industry is at its present thing is about twenty five percent. As as it grows, it'll be greater. Our transportation is about fifty percent. And you know, there's no debate that uh, even having um, one of the lines energized and sometimes two lines energized from the Labrador Island link from Labrador is making a huge difference to how much um, oil we burn out there as well. They've gone to a cleaner form of what one of the cleaner form of fuel that they're burning. One of the best ways to reduce carbon is to is to reduce the uh, the sulfur and the dirtiness of the oil that you burn in um, when you're transmitting electricity when you're when you're generating sorry electricity. And so they did that and made a big difference out there as well. So it is making a big difference. However, you know, it's our lifestyle choices that we all need to look ourselves in the mirror and, and address. And, and you don't need to look very far now. I mean, last year we had we had the West Coast, we had BC uh, with our heat waves. And uh, now Europe is getting absolutely baked, 47 degrees in Portugal, uh, almost 40 in the UK. Roads in France are actually in danger of melting. Rail lines uh, potentially becoming warped because of the heat. Uh, runways haven't been closed because they are they are too soft for airplanes to run on. And uh, one meteorologist said in southwestern areas of France it will be a heat apocalypse. Yeah, thousand thousand people have died over there. And and the amazing thing is that we all know it. We hear it. We've been hearing it for a long time. The first IPCC, um, which is the panel on climate intergovernmental panel on climate change, came out in nineteen. 19- I know it was 80, 1990, saying this is going to happen. Now they're saying that the projections for the heat events were probably off because they've underestimated the impact on jet streams, and that's having an impact on causing them to be hotter and longer. And and they really have no idea. And that's at 1.2 degrees change. And and Antonio, you United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who is he doesn't mince words, and he's the one who's seeing it on all levels in the poor countries as well as the richer countries. And he said, "We have a choice: collective action or collective suicide." So, you know, when leaders speak so bold, you know, so directly to us, and yet we are on our computers, booking our trips, and getting in our big trucks. And making the choices we make every day, whether it's online ordering or how much beef we eat and 
and we all know the difference. So, you know, when our grandchildren and children face what we are doing, I mean, CO2 goes up in the air for 200 to 1,000 years. So every liter of gas we burn is five pounds of CO2. And, uh, you know... I, I remember, you know, a few years ago, Stéphane Dion, when he, uh, when he, you know, made those bids to try and change um, the trajectory we were on in terms of climate change. And I remember him coming back from a, from a meeting. Oh, I can't remember where it was. Somewhere uh, on the. Uh, national or not national international landscape and he came back and it it was defeated and he was defeated you could see it in his body and he was warning of what was going to happen and he was one of the few politicians at the time if you recall who was speaking out about climate change and and speaking out about uh, uh, carbon emissions and and the and the like Um, and and here we are you know when you you watch a movie uh, don't look up and you know that was that was basically a comparison to how we're dealing with climate change. And uh, one of the last lines in the movie is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio says, we really had it all, didn't we? And uh, I feel like that's where we are. Tom, I appreciate your call this morning. Uh, Lots of food for thought there. Uh, Thanks very much. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with the president of the Association of um, Psychologists of Newfoundland and Labrador, Dr. Janine Hubbard. We'll be back right after this. And we're back. We're going to go now to Dr. Janine Hubbard. Hello. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Oh, you know, um, we're hanging in. It's been a great summer so far. Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in some terms it has been, uh, and a busy one at that for sure. Um, but uh, I understand that you had reached out to us hoping to talk a little bit about these fall boosters that everybody's talking about. Well, um, actually, even before we get to that, it's the announcement that came out last week about the vaccine availability for the uh, kids under five. Um, because that's a group of individuals that I know a lot of parents have been eagerly waiting for, but it's also a group that we know can often struggle with getting needles. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, give you guys a holler and maybe talk about a couple of tips and strategies that are more unique for that particular age group. Because it's really hard to explain to a six-month-old why they're, you know, having to, having to get a stab. I know, for sure. And, and sometimes they just got to put up with us, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, it's one thing to explain it to a 12 year old is another thing to explain it to a four and a half year old exactly although some of our four and a half year olds are pretty gosh darn smart um so really uh in some ways this group um may actually do better than a lot of the other groups because they've had more recent exposure because they've been having the regular immunizations so both parents and the kids are more familiar with the immunization process than perhaps, um, you know, adults who could easily have gone, you know, many years without a, without a needle. Um, so that piece helps. So step number one is really for parents just to be mindful of their own attitudes, their own fears, um, because especially in very young kids, um, they're going to pick up on the body language. If you're someone with an extreme needle fear um, and you're, you know, holding your infant they're going to be very mindful of it uh so whether that's you know 
just even being mindful yourself and trying to do some relaxation yourself, whether that's having an, another parent or a grandparent or somebody who um, is uh, less fearful, uh, take the child to the appointment. So, you know, there's a lot of possibilities there. But just kind that, of That's a big check. thing, by the way. I, I saw, I think it was on the nature of things or something like that. Uh, and it was really fascinating. They had done this study where uh, the parent was uh, impassive, uh, just uh, sitting there quietly, not doing much, mm-hmm. you know, holding the child, you know, yep. in their lap, but not, you know, clutching them, we'll say. Yes. And the doctor there with the with the needle and the and the and the baby or the child was just like, hey, how's it going? Oh, you just gave me a needle. What the heck? Uh, and and then it was over. Whereas exactly. uh, the parents who were <laughs> a little more anxious and and anxiety prone and, and I guess holding the child a little tighter, the kid was like, what's going on? What's going? Ah, no. Oh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And even sometimes uh, we, if we're fearful and don't like that, that's something we're doing to our child, we talk that out loud and we justify it. Oh, I'm so sorry. You have to go through this. Uh, All that kind of language, again, isn't helpful. Um, Even what we think of as that consoling, oh, maybe you're going to be okay. Um, The far more appropriate is the, we got this. Look, we're going to count to three and we're done. And so doing it as a very positive, empowering, as opposed to um, very innocently, um, very unconsciously sending a message that this is something to be fearful of. Um, So it's just something that, yeah, if I can ask parents to think about some of their own thoughts, their own reactions to that, that part's really, really helpful. Um, The other thing is the good news is in these little kids, we often do vaccinations with them sitting on a parent's lap. Um, uh, which, again, just provides that little bit of extra comfort uh, for really young infants, sometimes either having them with a soother or a pacifier or even breastfeeding, if that's something that they're used to doing, uh, can be a great both source of comfort to them and a distraction. Um, And one of the really interesting things that's come up for infants in uh, fairly consistent literature is the power of a little bit of sucrose water, sugar water. Um, Back what Nan suggested or, you know, Mary Holmes, uh, that little bit of sugar um, in, like I say, in a diluted concentration has actually uh, empirically been shown to reduce pain response in infants. Is that right? Yeah. Look at Nan. Nan, listen, Nan always knew best. But in this case, it's worth having a conversation with your pharmacist or your physician um, or the public health nurse just to kind of get a sense. Because, I mean, there are some guidelines about, you know, percentage of, like, glucose to water. But really, uh, in some cases, it's done just in a little syringe that you pop in the mouth. Um, or sometimes it's just dipping pacifier in it. Um, but it's not just the, oh, well, this tastes good, and ha, this is fun and exciting. There's actually been research to show that it decreases the, um, the body's pain response. Fascinating. I thought so. Uh, so that's right, but if that's something that parents haven't tried, and then I guess because uh, I know you're tight on time, the last thing I would say is if you have a slightly older child, say two and a half to five range, um, 
they're better able to, you know, understand and explain, and they may have more recent memories of having had a needle in the past. So talk to them about how did it go, what, you know, what was okay, what didn't you like, um, what do you remember about it? And if you have really fearful kids at that age, that's a great time to engage in some medical play. There's a reason those doctor's kits and nurse's kits, like the medical kits that are out there, are so popular. Um, so engage in medical play, not just the needle part, but the whole bit. Get them to listen to your heart. You listen to theirs. Take your blood pressure. You know, do all of the things there. Um, and then if they're getting more comfortable with that, you can always ask your pharmacist for an empty syringe, um, which is a great way to, again, do some medical play. Um, I have some kids where we use it, and you know what? That's how you get to uh, drink up your juice or your water at mealtime. Um, you put it in and then you squirt. Uh, you pl- uh, play with it in the bath. You give needles to your stuffed animals and your dolls. Um, there are all kinds of really great play activities that you can do with kids in that age range. Um, and then again, the biggest thing is keeping them distracted, uh, not making a big deal of it, and they will follow your lead for sure. What about the, those kids that do have that real fear uh, and uh, work themselves up uh, ahead of time? Um, is it better to tell them, look, we've got this appointment booked for next week? Or is it better to say, hey, we're just going in here for a second? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's always hard. And again, I trust parent gut. You know your child best. Some kids need the advance warning to work through the process and, again, engage in some of that practice, engage in some of that uh, preparation uh, activities. Um, There's a Canadian organization called SKIP. Uh, It's uh, uh, children in pain, kids in pain. We have some amazing kid pain, needle fear uh, researchers here in Canada. Um, and I will certainly try to get some more things up on the APNL uh, web, uh, social media in the next little bit around some strategies. So there's lots of preparation you can do. Um, I never believe in deceiving children, but at the same time, if you're, you have a kid who's going to have a lot of anticipatory fear, knowing even if it's telling them that morning or you know we never want to completely launch it on them or they may not get in the car with you ever again uh but some people need more lead time some people need less lead time for sure uh dr janine hubbard i really appreciate this this morning thanks very much don't be a stranger okay. oh listen happy anytime and i'm hoping you know at least this gets parents thinking about whether or not they need to be doing some anticipatory work as we wait for the province to announce the rollout details. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Okay. Bye-bye. Um, and your thoughts on that? Uh, give us a call. Uh, the uh, booster or um, the shot is now available for children under the age of five, and that presents some challenges to some parents, and it comes as welcome relief to others. Uh, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. We're going to go to news uh, just a little tad early, Dave, if uh, Brian is ready, uh, and uh, we hope to hear from you right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you on target weekday afternoons at one on your vocm and we're back uh linda swain in for patty daly who is off today uh we are going now to the president of the ffaw keith sullivan hello 
Hello and good morning, Linda. Good morning to you. So you had a couple of rallies now. What's it all about? Well, as some of your listeners might know, uh, shrimp harvesters, you know, particularly those who only have access to shrimp in the Gulf and some who work in plants over there have not been able to fish or have not had an hour of work this year. And it's really about uh, a couple of large uh, companies here in Newfoundland and Labrador that actually have so much control over the fishery that they're able to tr- attempt to hold these workers, these people, under their thumb uh, when it's totally unnecessary. So we have you know, Ocean Choice and Royal Greenland here uh, operating and not paying fair prices for local products. So, you know, there's there's people now where it's fish harvesters, plant workers, community supporters. They've been rallying outside the plant in uh, port of Ocean Choice, and now they're outside the plant in St. Anthony of Royal Greenland. And, you know, this is not what pe- people want to be doing at this time of the year. They'd much rather be fishing, and some are. And some are landing shrimp going up through the Gulf of St. Lawrence, landing in Nova Scotia and Quebec for prices like $1.45 per pound. And sailing right past here when companies in Newfoundland who got all this control were only offering 90 cents per pound. So, I mean, 50% more. And what makes it even more galling is that uh, like a plant like Royal Greenland, they got this plant in Quebec that they're you know paying this dollar forty five a pound while the same company in Newfoundland will not pay uh, you know only offer ninety cents for for the same same shrimp here so and what's happening again, though we have a fish price setting panel is that process not working uh well when when one uh, group really tries to sabotage it and throws low ball offers. And unfortunately, I believe the decision in this case was, was was way off. It definitely was not in line with the market on shrimp. So that was a problem. But, you know, ASP is saying they have issues with the arbitration system. But in Squid this past week, they threw a price at fishermen and never came to talk to them, something that's more important. So they're intentionally, you know, undermining the collective bargaining. But the problem there is they have the support of our provincial government. You know, so right now, if you're a shrimp harvester, there's no option for anyone else to come in and open up a plant. You can't ship out to anybody else. You only got these few big companies and they are being supported by provincial government. So how can they be allowed to take, uh, in St. Anthony now they're doing shrimp from, you know, these offshore draggers, some may be local, some may be from uh, from their friends in ASP like Ocean Choice, for example, but some may be from other companies. It's more expensive and it's worth less in the market, but they're putting that through and not buying it from inshore independent harvesters. The people who are the lifeblood of the Northern Peninsula and fishermen are just saying now, this is not acceptable and we need the government to really not uh, be protecting just these large companies, but also workers and fishermen and people in the communities on the Northern Peninsula. So you're saying that the prices are set in favor of uh, the factory-owned or, or the company-owned factory freezer trawlers and the like, uh, as opposed to the inshore fish harvesters? Well, in here, they're they're buying, like, for example, this offshore shrimp, what they call it industrial, you know, they buy this as, you know, going rate is about $1.80 per pound right now. And where that's twice frozen, generally a, a, a lesser quality, and it's sold at a lower price than our fresh, uh, fresh product. 
And right now, they're not even offering above a dollar for, for that. I mean, it's clearly just uh, abuse and using people and, and the workers in this province. But again, the provincial government is allowing them to process this shrimp from, from offshore, but not buy local stuff. They have that privilege, and it should not be allowed. And that's why workers are gathered there today. At least put us on a level playing field. You know, They shouldn't be allowed to get this product put it through and make money while they're making inshore harvesters in this province suffer. And this is what we've been talking about for so long, this lack of competition and just the, the abuse and the throwback to the kind of the, the merchant days again. It's unfortunate. And uh, we certainly need support for the people of the province and just not propping up a couple of companies. So how are the prices set in Nova Scotia or, or the province of Quebec to see this kind of disparity? There, there's a variety of ways. Uh, one uh, here, we just it's uh, less competition. Some of that is the rules of provincial government, and some is just by virtue of being, you know, on, on an island that makes it more difficult. So if you're in Nova Scotia, you're connected to New Brunswick and Quebec, and there's more competition generally, just by the nature of it. And in Quebec, there's also a price-setting uh, uh, structure similar to Newfoundland and Labrador. So that's one area there where there's, uh, you know, more similarities, I suppose, than differences. But it seems there the, the the companies, and in fairness, it happens a lot here in the past, but less and less in recent years, that there's real competition for the for the product, and they're willing to pay uh, pay fair prices. But this year, uh, you know, companies really pushed out lowball offers, and you know, seems set on, you know undermining uh, a transparent system. It's unsure what the final play here is, but right now, uh, people who are fishing in the in the Gulf in particular and others for shrimp are caught in the middle and not getting the attention it needs from, right from, uh, you know, the Premier, who we had good conversations with, and now we're going to have a meeting in very short order with Minister Davis and Minister Bragg, and we hope that they... They, they come with, you know, some of the requests that harvesters seen to put them on a level playing field. Keith Sullivan, I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for the time, Linda. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, we are going to go now to Margaret. You're on the air. Hello, Margaret. Oh, hi. I didn't know you were talking to me, honey. Uh, you said that you had a few calls. Yeah, no trouble. Uh, hi. Uh, good morning. Uh, this is uh, Linda. Yes. Yes, okay, just wanted to be able to address you by your name. I was speaking to Tim the, uh, last week and a few days before that. Uh, yes, this is Margaret Tucker, Brandon's mom. Um, uh. Yeah, it's been 10 days uh, yesterday, 11 days today. Uh, we had a sighting last night, and it was in St. Anthony. Now, St. Anthony, uh, I assume, is up the Buren Peninsula. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the area. Uh, so anyway, St. Anthony. St. Anthony is on the tip of the uh, Great Northern Peninsula. Okay, well, yes, that's perfect, perfect. You can get that out there. Uh, the sighting was at about 1.30. This person said around 2 o'clock he was uh, walking back and forth uh, the road, I guess. They, they said also that it's a fishing area, and um, a fishing area is like a touristy place. The person was fishing, and this person this, uh, saw them at 1.30, 2 o'clock. And uh, it's a, all they could tell me was it was a fishy fishing point that people normally fish, and it's a tourist area. 
Um, so basically, I wanted to put that out because this was yesterday. I, I only found out about it this morning. Has there uh, been any um, activity on on any uh, bank accounts or anything like that to no, indicate no. how he's getting by? He didn't have a wallet, so obviously he didn't have cards. <clears throat> I would hope that he had money in his pocket. I don't go there. The RCMP are taking care of all that. If they had information from the transactions, they'd be able to trace that. So that would be a blessing. But when he left that morning, he did not take a wallet with him. So I don't go there thinking whether he had money at all because it's it's upsetting. But then you hope that the kindness of people in uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, if they did not see it on media and didn't report it, that they would somehow offer him help in some way. So, uh, so police have, oh. have ended their official search, I suppose. You know. Well, I, w- well, I wouldn't call, when they say uh, it came on the news that uh, the search was ended, what they mean by that is that they've exhausted everything that they could do with the ground crew, the air crew. Uh, they extended the grid, which is the ground search, out to Lewisport. Um, they can't, and they cannot continue because the men are exhausted. So I was told that a few days before it actually went on the news. Uh, so that it wouldn't upset me. But obviously just the wording of it is upsetting. But that does not mean by any point uh, that uh, the RCMP are not fully in an active investigation, which means if they get a call and say that he is cited in Gander behind uh, Tim Hortons, the, sir, the uh, constables are sent out immediately to that tip. Uh, if, if, if it's something that's very strong, well, then obviously they put the ground search back into effect immediately, as they did from day one. So to think of it as a negative, it com- to me it comes across negative. And then people who don't have it in the forefront of their mind, seeing it on TV, hearing of it on VOCM, and all of that, and seeing the picture on the NTV and the CBC News, to me that's negative because they're not getting to see it. Sometimes if people don't have it in the forefront of their brain, it kind of slips their mind, and I'm hoping that uh, that's not the case. I'm hoping that, no, uh, we're still looking, and, and, and people of Newfoundland Labrador are like that. And me calling in, I'm sure I, it, it's difficult. It's the 10th day. I'm hanging on by a thread, but I'm still being active, and I'm still doing things. I was on the Flander the other day, the Fury, because I search. When I'm in town, I search St. Phillips. It's another point I wanted to make. He's from St. Phillips. I raised my boys on O'Brien Cove Road. So I'm hoping that he may go back to the property, which is there with a shed and a, and a foundation for another home, and uh, which is family. So I'm hoping that someone, even in the St. Phillips area, um, you know, they know him. I've gone to people I know. Uh, I, I was going past the other night, or the night before, I passed the ferry on the Bell Island run. And I went down and just spoke to the young men there, thinking, well, look, oh, of course they have everything going across from Marine Atlantic. So the release was made by the RCMP. They're doing everything they can. They're wonderful, by the way. Um, the release was made to them. Anything that they get, the release comes to them, you know, from the video footage to the term- in the terminal and around the surrounding uh, area of the ship. So and you're still getting, so- you're still getting um, uh, these calls uh, from people who think they may have seen him? Of course, yeah. of course. I mean, tips are going up. But my point is, I went when I was down going past the ferry and doing my normal run every night till about 10.30 or 11 in St. Phillips and Portugal Cove, hoping I may see him. You know, that's the mother in me. Anyone would do the same thing. Um, I went I went and I spoke to uh, the young man there, and he said, uh, no, I'll, I'll get the captain to speak to you. He was gracious enough to put, bring me right up. I was right there at the front of the ship with the captain, and he told me, he said, Margaret, it's a good thing you dropped by because he said we're not under the Marine Atlantic umbrella. We're under what's considered the Canadian 
international uh, umbrella. And he said, I'll give you a name now, which is Colin Power. I contacted that man at 8 o'clock. At 8.05, he had a full release across the whole province, from Fogo Island to all the other ports, I guess, that have the ferries cross. So that was another piece of mind for me. No, okay, great, we have that covered. We're, we're taking care of that. And then I have, um, you know, I have, con- I, I have so many people trying to help. You know, Margaret, what do you have anybody, you know, to, to lean on personally? To, of course. Do you have a support network? Yeah. Of course. I have that much support, and the people are amazing. Uh, but, of course, I'm an only child. You know, I, I'm divorced. Um, but that, you know, so I, I basically am independent anyway. Uh, I have my mother, which Tim would know. I had mentioned he ha- she has dementia, onset dementia. So she's doing well, but, you know, this, this is troubling. So you try to protect her, too. So she's here with me. And I have a son who has COVID, so he's in the basement. So I'm trying to, pull, you know, do it all. And... Uh, and then going out, getting on the phone, calling Huawei. We need the manufacturer's GPS coordinates, which is like pulling teeth, because you ha- and and we have everything being done now. Because I contacted uh, the yeah. office of. Uh, so there's there's been no activity yeah. on his phone either. No, because they're always pinging, hoping the phone will be turned on or the phone will be charged. If your phone is off or not charged, they're not able to catch yeah, you. Yeah, of course you not. obviously yeah. access with a ping. Yeah. And the last ping was on Friday, which I told him and all the public know. But the thing is, uh, the minute they get the GPS coordinates, that's full ground on search, too, again. But don't take it the wrong way. When they say the search is called off, it's not that it's called off. It's an active investigation. Even the RNC. Uh, no, no, no. And, and like, a, like a lot of uh, cases, yeah, they, they remain active of course but the the intensive search uh, the, the effort Absolutely. goes into the they've intensive exhausted. search has has yeah. to wind down at some point yeah yes they've exhausted everything that they could do possible you know unless they want to bring a right to port bass with a search you possibly can't you can't do that we even had universal helicopters come in from town yeah. because and the ground sir and also the ground search and the rovers from bonavista and the 103 gander we even have the aviation students who are up at the pilot constantly yes. looking yeah. at the rough doing their runs so i mean everything yeah. So a lot of people, yeah, are still still very much Obviously, keeping their yes, eyes and yes. ears open. Yeah, They're Margaret, doing what anyone would do, but I just wanted to reach out because Saint Anthony was the last sighting that if it was him you pray to god that it is him and any sighting is golden right so i said okay i'll call in this morning like i said it's getting harder every day but i'm not going from any other thought process other than he's coming home and when he does he'll get the help that he needs and uh, but basically i thought i'd call in today get the you know get the uh, strength up to call in because uh, like i said you're hanging on a thread yeah uh, because it's exhausting yeah, so Margaret, uh, let you know. we wish you all the best, of course, and, and um, make sure you know that you do have those supports around you of course. I um, have and keeping support. you keeping on, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, yes, yeah. that's what I'm doing Yeah, all every right. day, every night. So thank you so much for taking me uh, for a minute. I know the public needs to be notified. I need they, they, those eyes in St. Anthony this morning. Everyone listens to your program, so I'm sure someone may see something. And they hear a plea from me again today. May You know, if, if you can have uh, have people of Newfoundland and Labrador who are the kindest and best people in the world, uh, I'm sure they would reach out. And if I thought giving my number would help, which I'm not going to, obviously, uh, I 
I would do that in a heartbeat too. So I'll just continue to search and go back to Clarenville and do everything that I can do. And yes, I have support and the RCMP are amazing and they are wonderful and it is an active search. The minute they get any kind of a clue or tip, they're there. The cars are there from every detachment. So I want to put that out there. Thank you so much for this morning, Linda. Yeah, all the best to you. And I think Dave wants to speak to you for a moment, if that's okay. I'll put you back on hold. Oh, he's got you. All right. Uh, and we're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. Playing in for Patty Daly. We're going now to Dave Callahan. Hello. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Well, I'm not bad. That's good. Now, i got to say that the reason I called, because I was listening to your show this morning, and I heard something that I'd, I just can't imagine the usefulness of the direction that was just given by a caller previous when talking about getting children accustomed to taking needles so they could be inoculated with covid shots okay what's what did you well, see is problematic there a couple of things there are a lot of virologists epidemiologists that are on the fence about giving these shots to infants to young children the only ones that seem to be pushing this new shot is like I think it's Moderna that's developed it so we have this great new shot for kids well we're listening to the pusher we're listening to the seller I go out and I find other than legacy media and mainstream media because you won't find it but you can go elsewhere medical journals medical uh, blogs where you will see a lot of people pushing the fact that kids should not be immunized. And for the start of when this went on first, when these vaccines were developed, we were told flat out that children shouldn't get them. Well, I guess over time, using whatever form of conditioning, mind poison I would call it, we've now gotten to the point where we're expected to believe, as a parent, I'm speaking as a parent now, that I'm supposed to listen to political view or someone's schedule or agenda on stabbing us again. I, not very long ago, I just heard how, well, boy, yeah, a fourth shot is what you're going to need now. You're going to need to be boosted. Now, the second time, well, first time was no good. Second time, you need to have a second shot to be fully inoculated. Then you had to be boosted. Now you're going to have to be boosted again. Are you preparing people for constantly jabbing children now with this same inoculation that has proven to not work? The Moderna Spike Vax has been approved by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, who who go through these uh, rigorous protocols. Yep, I know. And that's just but one organization. And there are lots more. But they're the advisory. They're the advisory committee for uh, for these kinds of medical policies in, in Canada. Yep. And uh, outside of Canada and elsewhere, you're going to find a lot of opposition to that. So what I'm saying is this. Also in Canada, reported this morning, CBC, you can go have a look. The fourth COVID shot is expected to not give you a great deal of anything. Not much more in terms of the immunity you get from the shot. 
not going to be any more uh, natural immunity picked up as a result of the shot? No, but the key here is is not the immunity. It's not going to prevent you from getting the illness. What it's going to do is keep you from getting put in the hospital or getting seriously Keep you from getting seriously ill. Okay, well, that's great, Linda, if you believe that. But I just went through a very healthy woman, third time shot, twice and then boosted, who just received, I guess, her first... Her her first experience with COVID and it was not a good one. No, no, not it's a serious all. illness. I mean, it is off her a feet. serious illness. Yes. Yeah. So what I'm saying, Linda, and what the vaccine will do better. is to help to protect you somewhat from getting terminally ill, from from uh, developing. Where are the studies that prove that that actually occurs? I'm hearing this all the time. I hear this every day. You show me a study that's guaranteed and has been one that's been signed off by all the peer groups. Nobody's arguing the study. I would call that the equivalent to what we could expect from other vaccines. And believe me, there's many others that work. I believe in it. I'm not a non-vaxxer. I am of the opinion, no problem. And, And let's get right back to how vaccines have led to vaccine mandates. Vaccine mandates came about because people did not have the level of trust in what was being pushed by these major pharmas. Right now, two years later into an epidemic, a pandemic, we see that what we've been getting stabbed with isn't providing the traditional safeguarding that you would expect from other things that we have taken. The virus is continuing to evolve. Exactly. This virus has not not reached a stabilized level. So it's continually evolving. And the vaccines are are trying to keep up with that. But it takes time. We're in a pandemic situation. Millions of people are affected. Millions around the world. And will continue to be affected. Um, Lots of people I know have covid right now uh, but many of them are vaccinated and hopefully they won't get seriously ill and end up in the hospital we're trying to save the people we're trying to protect the people who are most vulnerable who have underlying conditions who have weakened immune systems who are elderly um, I you know I care very deeply for a lot of people who are in those categories and As I want to make I. sure that they are kept safe and exactly. so decisions that you I'm make on behalf of children will be your own decision. Uh, But you have to make sure that you're getting the right information. You have to make sure that what you're looking at is a legitimate source, uh, is is something that you trust. So I think those are the key messages for people to know. And this is the fight that we've been having uh, amongst ourselves, all of us individually uh, throughout the course of this pandemic. And there will always be people who are going to be suspicious for whatever reason reason they're going to be suspicious but i urge people to be educated on their own level and to seek out the the sources that are accurate and are um legitimate as opposed to opinion yeah as exactly we should do with anything regarding our health as far as vaccinations are concerned i am as i just stated and i don't want to ever be categorized as different I'm not against vaccines. I just, like Huey Lewis said, I want a new drug. I want one that actually works 
one that I'm not getting stabbed every couple of months, and having the question of the effectiveness of the last stab. I mean, this thing has gone because through so many types of debate. Pardon? Because the virus is evolving. Yes, the virus but the vaccines aren't. And if they're the trying to keep up with that, but it takes time. you're giving me time. something that was intended for the original strain, what is it doing? It's proven right now you can get stabbed. I have not seen a definitive study or reporting, shall we say, of people's opinions on this that have supported the fact that these multiple stabbings are working. I know that somebody said, and it's supposed to be out there, and they've endorsed it because it's supposed to help you from getting uh, seriously ill, hospitalized, etc. And boy, I'm going to tell you what, I love that idea. Or dying. But I've that just, this is what we're exactly, trying to prevent, people worst. from dying. Yes, but how much... How much can we rely upon information? Like t- this morning when I'm reading you is coming from CBC, and they very seldom report anything that's counter to what's going on. Right now, what I'm reading here this morning tells me that, the, believe me, the, uh, there's still lots of, uh, of uncertainty out there about what you can expect from this. The BA5 variant has gotten around most everything. It's considered to be the seventh wave that we're living in Canada right now. Well, by the seventh wave, I would have expected, instead of us continuing to take and accept the fact and driving corporate profits through the roofs for the likes of Pfizer and Moderna and whoever else, let's put some pressure on them to give us something better. Maybe if the world said, look, get out there and give us something that provides more immunity and gives us true, you got a question, is if people have false belief in how safe they are because they've vaxxed all these times. How safe do you feel when you go out? Well, I'm going to tell you, I had a, a very healthy person near and dear to me that triple vaxxed, just got violently ill. So what I'm telling you and what I'm stating is I don't think these things are good enough. Well, and and on top of that now, we've had a lot of our mandates that have been lifted. So these things that we've been accustomed to and living with for the last little while, working from home, uh, keeping away from uh, major gatherings, now we have gatherings, um, uh, wearing your mask, now we don't have a mask mandate anymore, you're still recommended to wear a mask. So a lot of these things have dropped away, and so people are getting them. People yep. are getting the virus. So those are still yep. the main ways in which you can personally, on a personal level, um, protect yourself from getting the illness. And it is a serious illness. But, uh, Dave, we're going to have to leave it there because uh, we're way overdue for a break. But I really appreciate your call. It's a counterpoint, Linda. There's one that should be out there. And as far as I'm concerned, rather than just one way this is okay do this do this do this do this okay it's been sanctioned by these guys no it should always be questioned right now the effectiveness of these vaccines are most definitely questionable by anybody's standard if they weren't you would never need a mandate people would line up have the opportunity to take these things. It's not like the polio shot. It's not like the ones for diphtheria and all the smallpox. Those things have worked. Those conditions were mostly eradicated throughout this world. This is not happening for this one. No, because it's novel. It's new. It's something we haven't seen before, and it's evolving. Uh, So that's part of the difference. Smallpox we've been living with for eons.
Uh, so those are part of the problems and part of the difficulties in, in uh, this particular scenario, which a lot of people tend to overlook and forget. But Dave, we'll have to leave it there. We're way overdue for a break. Thank Dave Williams is on my back. Right. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, Linda. Okay. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. And we're back. We're going to go now to the Federal Minister of Public Services and Procurement, who happens to be in uh, Newfoundland, Philomena Tassi. Hello. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show and welcome to the province. Thank you so much. So uh, what are you doing here? So, well, I've been here uh, yesterday and today, and thus far I've toured uh, the Torbay Small uh, Craft Harbour and uh, as well had an opportunity to meet with uh, Deputy Mayor O'Leary and Minister Cody. And it's been uh, fantastic uh, being here and getting uh, really good input. Um, But back, uh, great to be back. For sure. And so you're the Minister of Public Services and Procurement. So in in that role, what kind of things were you discussing with some of these uh, leaders, Siobhan Cody and um, Sheila O'Leary? With with, um, on the political side, really uh, a couple of things Uh, on the procurement side, talking about what our government is doing with respect to modernization and diversity in procurement. And really, our goal is to make it easier for businesses to uh, be successful in their bids with the government. And that's about leveling the playing field, building up uh, diverse businesses and, and really trying to give them opportunities to have successful procurements with government. So it's leveraging the procurement opportunities, including socioeconomic um, criteria with respect to looking at value, really to build Canadian businesses. So great to have the dialogue um, with uh, both of these strong women uh, in this regard. And then, of course, talking about other, you know, I let them speak about issues uh, with respect to um, what was being faced here and uh, a great conversation, which is uh, very helpful for me uh, in this uh, portfolio. Uh, so what do you mean by uh, modernization of the procurement? More, you know, more specifically, you, you want to help, um, you know, build up a local business. But, you know, in terms of cost, in terms of uh, uh, delivery, those kinds of things, if a, if a company needs to build up, it has to be, be able to deliver, obviously. And we don't want to just uh, put our money out there and hope for the best. We want to make sure that we're going to get the results. So what do you mean by modernization of the the procurement um, system? So what we've done is we released uh, a policy in the spring of 2021 and put together a supplier diversity action plan. So I think that the two need to be put together, the modernization piece and uh, the diverse piece in terms of attracting businesses. And in this uh, plan, as we've moved forward, we've taken on a number of initiatives. We have, you know, uh, consulted with businesses. I have done roundtables. We've set up pilot projects so that we can get input from businesses to help better understand how those businesses that really want to do business with the federal government are facing obstacles in doing it. So the idea here is to bring down the barriers 
and provide for businesses an opportunity where they really have, they feel that they have a chance to succeed. So that, you know, um, and so we are working now towards preparing a program that we are going to put forward that's going to set out some of these um, uh, uh, the, the things that we have heard to make it easier for businesses to secure those contracts. And so I can give you an example. Like businesses are saying to us, look, it's hard as a small business to qualify. These, these uh, applications are complicated and long. We need assistance. So we have Procurement Assistance Canada, which we have set up, um, and that Procurement Assistance Canada is really a, a resource to give businesses an opportunity to have direct conversations, questions that they want to answer, be answered, to make it easier for businesses. Um, also, a coaching, uh, a coaching pilot that we set up that was so successful, but now we are going to expand as we move forward. So businesses that have put in applications and have not been successful have the ability to speak to a coach to say, okay, what can we do better? How do we improve what we are doing? And so that resource has been um, shown to prove effective in helping businesses. So it's continuing to build on those resources to ensure that those companies that are bidding feel that they actually have a fair chance at receiving contracts. So that work is, it continues to be underway, um, and eventually, in the very near future, we will be releasing a program that will set out more specific details in bringing all this information together that we have obtained through these consultations, pilots um, uh, that we have uh, been running across the country. Are, are governments getting better at taking it out of the political realm, or are we always going to have that uh, perceived taint, I suppose? Uh, cynically, a lot of people would say, well, you know, they're going to get the contract because they're good party X supporters. So if we're, look, at, we, we absolutely do not want any of that. I, I, as procurement minister, am focused on supporting companies so they can really have a level playing field and feel that they have a fair chance at making the contract. And it's procurement officials that determine in terms of those bids. They take a look at the applications. They are the ones. I have never ventured into an application and said, you have to give it to this company. It's not my role. I have amazing procurement officials that are responsible for going through that. But we absolutely, to your point, want to build up confidence in this system, but also open up doors. We want small businesses in Canada and larger ones too, but I know we've heard from a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, to feel that they really have a chance to succeed here. And we have work to do in order to get there, making applications easier providing businesses with support. But one of the things, for example, is when you have a small business, you don't want to give the resource to a person in that business to write government uh, bids. They need to put that resource into developing the products that they're developing. So how can we work together to ensure that we are enabling those businesses to make a solid application so that the time that they're spending isn't onerous, but at the same time giving them an opportunity to show us what they have and uh, eventually hoping that they do succeed so that they will profit from their success and we will be better because the value of those contracts will ultimately contribute to uh, Canadians by supporting those Canadian businesses and at the same time enabling them to grow 
and then further um, enhancing, you know, the economic uh, growth. So that's that's the focus. It's it's a very important uh, work, and I'm I'm excited about it, um, and uh, I really appreciate getting input from uh, from businesses and diverse underrepresented populations across this country uh, who have given invaluable uh, uh, input as we move forward. Minister of Public Services and Procurement for the Government of Canada, Philomena Tassi, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Linda. Okay. Bye-bye. And Dave, I need a little direction here. We're Yes, we have to take the break now because we were overdue for the last one. So we'll be back right after this. And we're back. We're going to go now to Art. You're on the air. Hi, Linda. Hi, Art. Hi, girl. Uh, I'm up Southern Shore here, and uh, uh, that last caller, uh, he has some very legitimate uh, uh, statements that he made, because I had friends of mine that had uh, COVID shots, and uh, he got very, very, very sick. Oh, yes, it's not going to prevent you from getting sick, and it's not going to prevent you from getting very sick, uh, but it's going to prevent you from being hospitalized in some cases or even dying. But they got sick from the shot. But anyway, my call is about uh, the municipal strike in Mount Pearl. And a gentleman called yesterday, and he said that it's preventing the kids uh, from playing sports. Well, yeah, because uh, the the you know nobody wants to cross a picket line, of course, uh, and no, in some cases the picket lines are there, and and the outside uh, facilities, in, including the inside facilities, but it's all maintained by by uh, staff who are on strike right now. But the, the alpha are the fields available? They are, but uh, parents are left with the difficult decision of whether or not they want to cross a picket line or or get involved in this kind of a of a labor dispute. I, I so. don't. Th- I don't think the guys are going to stop the kids from going on the field, girl. Right? No, I mean, but nobody wants to. Fields, nobody wants to cross that. Open, there's soccer fields open. There's basketball courts open. Uh, like I, I, I coached. Uh, uh, a lot of things, right? But uh, um, I, I just want to make a statement. Uh, get the parents together and take the kids out and let them play their sports. The, 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 the municipal employees aren't going to stop the kids from playing. I don't think they're going to stop the kids from playing, no. But, like, the organizations just, they don't want to get involved into a labor dispute like that. Uh, so they're they're making the decision to cancel programming. That's all. And and parents are, are are put in that they they want they don't want to put the parents in those difficult uh, positions of having to make those de- decisions individually. So the organizations are are canceling programming for the time being. Excuse, excuse me, Linda. Uh, what are you talking about? Difficulty. Take a bunch of kids. Have a good coach. Have some leadership there. Uh, the, the municipal uh, uh, employees are not going to stop the kids from playing friggin' ball, man. All right. Well, we'll see what others have to say. People who are living in Mount Pearl and uh, and who have kids who are right now I, unable to uh, participate in organized sport. I have a daughter and a grandchild living in Mount Pearl. I live in Mount Pearl myself. I own a, a residence up out there, and uh, I know the people that work there. I know the people that, and they're good people. And the best, the best uh, services that you'll ever get way better in St. John's are in Mount Pearl. They're great people. 
Uh, let's hope they have some f fabulous facilities. I have to say, fabulous facilities. Yeah, they're yeah. dandy. They're, they're dandy people. But anyway, uh, uh, I just uh, had to say that to that gentleman. I said, look, if if I was out there right now, I'd say to the boys, come on, boys, let's go over to uh, the field and have a game of softball. You don't have to be organized. It, it just be a bit of fun, right? Oh yeah, I hear what you're saying. Uh, Art, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. God bless. And regardless of them vaccines, girl, I would not advise anybody to have any more vaccines. I had one because my three daughters works in healthcare, and uh, um, I had one, and uh, my buddy had one, and he got so sick, it was unbelievable, man. He, he's still sick from it. Okay. I appreciate your call, Art. All right. God bless Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to go now to Keith. You're on the air. Hello. Hi, Keith. How's it going today? Good. Yeah, so um, actually what I want to talk about today kind of fits in with this whole the vaccine hesitancy and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's because I feel like there's a huge lack of information and education here in Newfoundland about COVID and where we are in this actual pandemic that is super still going on. Um, a lot of people are under the completely false pretense that, uh, you know, the pandemic is over, COVID is cured, uh, we're all good to go back to 2019. And what I'm seeing is, you know, a lot of people I know, a lot of people everybody know, are super sick with COVID in the middle of July. And for me, that's super concerning because we've always had sort of breaks between these huge waves that would put the massive strain on healthcare and Indeed. get a lot of people sick. And we're not seeing that. Summer so, is usually the time when we see a lull in these things, but everything has lifted. We're traveling, we're doing it all as if it was prior to the pandemic and it's not. Exactly. Right. And I mean, this is a, this is a, like pretty much if you want to calculate, you know, the risk factor, this is the most dangerous time of the pandemic for any of it, especially Newfoundland. I mean, a lot of statisticians and, you know, the estimates are out that Newfoundland is, you know, if not the, the worst in the top three. Uh, regularly since the summer started for the highest risk of COVID infection. So the problems that I have with that is that that's not being, you know, communicated clearly by our leadership, by, uh, you know, whoever else, celebrities, whatever, whoever we need to get that message out there. So Newfoundlanders are, you know, love NTV, love VOCM, love tuning in, and they need to hear that stuff from, you know, the, the Dr. Fitzgeralds and the Premier and everybody else because right now it's a huge free-for-all. And what you're seeing is hospitals are pushed to the limit. And the problem with that is the, the healthcare workers aren't getting that break that they normally get. So usually, you know, you, it's like, it's like in the teaching profession. So you go through, you know, winter and you're, by the time May and June comes around, you're running on fumes and then you get that break. So healthcare workers don't necessarily take off the entire summer like teachers, but they usually get a break in, you know, terms of, you know, the, the amount of people that are coming in to the hospital and the amount of you know running around they have to do and how many times they're getting sick and how many people are out sick and how many times they're working short staffed and everything else like that so what we're seeing right now is the compounding damage from COVID long COVID all the rest of it is really catching up to us all at once because we're allowing this free-for-all with you know people believing COVID is over I can't catch COVID I already had it and it's, and, uh, it's you know, not front like of mind anymore either I mean we're only getting updates once 
once a week online yep. and they don't really reflect the, the true statistics because they're not even doing the, the uh, uh, full PCR testing on everybody anymore because of the strain on the healthcare system. Uh, exactly. So we've had yep. an average of 500 cases of each week, every yep. week since yep. uh, the summer started. So that, you know, there was a time if that was the case, we'd be, everything would be shut down. Yes, exactly. And I mean, and here's the thing. So we have people and myself, I'm concerned with the vaccine, you know, the, the like how well it's working. But the problem is, like, like you mentioned earlier, is that we're not giving the vaccines time to catch up. So you, you, we can't have our cake and eat it, too. Right. We can't have 2019 and expect the vaccines to be, you know, built in because these variants are coming quicker than they used to. Right. So right now, as BA5 is starting to take over as the dominant strain in India, BA 2.75 is starting to take off. So that's likely our next one, which has even more mutations than the ones before it. Now, the problem I have with this, the, the major problem is that I, I shouldn't be saying this on VOCM open line. This should be communicated by our chief medical health officer and our premier and everybody else who I don't feel right now are getting across that message that, yes, COVID is here. COVID is, is basically it's rampant. We're at the, the most dangerous time of the pandemic, and we're taking the least amount of precautions. I mean, the amount of mask wearing in stores and everything else has dropped significantly because even when the, the mandates were, re were released or relaxed, people were still doing it. Okay, out of habit, out of whatever. And now as it gets summer and the barbecues are cooking and everything else, it's, well, you know, that's gone. But it's not. Uh, I mean, we all know somebody right now infected with COVID. We do. And, all of us. And it's, yeah. it's July. Yeah. Right. So even if it was before COVID and you just had the flu and you had whatever else, you don't go, you know, you don't talk to your friends in the middle of July and like seven of them have the flu. Right. So, uh, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about the healthcare system and if that was always the number one, you know, uh, cause for concern, which was never for me. So long COVID, you know, the fact that uh, 10 to 20 percent of people who get COVID at, on any form of infection, asymptomatic, mild symptoms, whatever, can develop long COVID. And it can happen any point after you're infected. You could be eight months out and then all of a sudden get some weird thing happen to you. And it's like, whoops. Um, yeah. So that's always been my my number one concern because I'm not a politician. I don't run the hospitals. But even if they were just worrying about the hospital capacity and the ICUs and everything else, what we're doing right now is every time we're infecting a nurse or a doctor or whoever else, we're rolling the dice that that person can, can come back to work or if they're going to be out for a long time. Now, before COVID, we had a deficit of these workers. You know, we have 100,000 people in the province without a family doctor. So if we lose one or two or three, you know, doctors to long COVID and they're out for two or three months or whatever, or their, their abilities are diminished. Or if we lose, you know, five, 10, 15 nurses, that's going to be a major, you know, uh, ripple effect that we're not able to, you know, we, we just can't crank out new doctors and nurses. So And, and I, the greater the spread, of course, the more rapid the evolution of the virus. So uh, exactly. unfortunately, we're way overdue for news. So I'm yep. going to be fired after this show. <laughs> um, Keith, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, stay safe, everyone. All right, bye-bye. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And we're back. We're going to go now to uh, Lori on line three. Hi, Lori. Hi. How are you? 
I'm great. How are you? Good, good. What's on your mind? Um, so I'm just calling today. On Friday, um, in the Cornerbrook area, my son lost a tote out of the back of his truck. And this is just a plea to anyone in the Cornerbrook surrounding area that, like, this is a work tote with his work gear. Um, you know, if anybody maybe has the tote, it would be uh, wonderful if he can get it back. So what happened? Was it taken or did it come out of the back end while he was driving or what, what happened? Yeah, it came out of the back of his truck, so he did leave his tailgate down, and uh, it came out of the back of his truck by the lights by Dominion on the Lewin Parkway. Um, a CRV was, um, you know, messaged them and said that they were driving a CRV and they pulled in and put the tote on the side of the road by uh, Dominion. And um, he also got another message that between 545 and 645, a silver Chevy truck was seen picking up the um, tote and putting it in their truck. Ah, so he lost it. It was recovered and placed on the side of the road so he could go back and get it if he noticed it missing. And somebody else noticed it. Yes. And besides, like, all his personal, like, work gear, uh, boots, rain gear, um, he works in the forestry um, area. Um, it's a lot of work gear. So it would be really of no use to anyone not in that uh, field. Right. Uh, so it, immensely important to him, possibly not that important to anybody else. Yeah, like, um, you know, as personal things, we can repurchase and buy. And, I'm, you know, I guess his work will repurchase items as well. Um, but he's leaving on Saturday to go to Northwest Territories for work. And, um, you know, it'd be great if he could get this gear back. And, you know, perhaps it's someone we've posted on social media all weekend and uh, lots of shares and, uh, you know, people, um, you know, sharing the posts and stuff. But perhaps it's someone that don't have social media and probably just doesn't know what to do with the tote. So maybe if you're listening and you have a big heavy-duty tote that has, um, you know, there's rain boots, rain gear, um, you know, and a lot of forestry gear, it'd uh, be great if we could get it back. So are you leaving a number for somebody to call? And I, I assume this is no questions asked? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my son, Ryan, his um, cell phone number is 709-660-3839. He is um, in the woods working, so he definitely won't get a call. And I can leave my number as well. My name is Lori. I'm his mom, and uh, my number is 709-660-9839. All right, so we have those numbers here if somebody uh, wants to uh, give you a call. Um, and hopefully he gets it back now before he heads up north. Yeah, and, I mean, his dad owns a convenience store on O'Connell Drive, Miles' Grosseteria. And, you know, if you have the tote and uh, or, you know, maybe want to return it, um, easy drop off maybe could be there. Okay, well, that's a great option as well. Uh, drop it off at Miles Grosseteria on O'Connell Drive if you happen to uh, see it or know where it is or uh, have picked it up and, and want to get it back to the owner. I really appreciate this, uh, Laura. All the best. Uh, keep us up to date. Thanks so much for taking my call today. Alrighty. Bye. Oh, bye bye. I called her Laura and her name is Lori. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. We're going to go now to uh, Lori on line three. Hi, Lori. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. What's on your mind? Um, so I'm just calling today. On Friday, um, in the Cornerbrook area, my son lost a tote out of the back of his truck. 
And this is just a plea to anyone in the Cornerbrook surrounding area that, like, this is a work tote with his work gear. Um, you know, if anybody maybe has the tote, it would be uh, wonderful if he can get it back. So what happened? Was it taken or did it come out of the back end while he was driving or what, what happened? Yeah, it came out of the back of his truck. So he did leave his tailgate down and uh, came out of the back of his truck by the lights by Dominion on the Lewin Parkway. Um, a CRV was, um, you know, messaged them and said that they were driving a CRV and they pulled in and put the tote on the side of the road by uh, Dominion. And um, he also got another message that between 545 and 645, a silver Chevy truck was seen picking up the um, tote and putting it in their truck. Ah, so he lost it. It was recovered and placed on the side of the road so he could go back and get it if he noticed it missing. And somebody else noticed it. Yes. And besides, like, all his personal, like, work gear, uh, boots, rain gear, um, he works in the forestry um, area. Um, it's a lot of work gear. So it would be really of no use to anyone not in that uh, field. Right. Uh, so immensely important to him, possibly not that important to anybody else. Yeah, like, um, you know, as personal things we can repurchase and buy. And, I'm, you know, I guess his work will repurchase items as well. Um, but he's leaving on Saturday to go to Northwest Territories for work. And, um, you know, it'd be great if he could get this gear back. And, you know, perhaps it's someone we've posted on social media all weekend and uh, lots of shares and, uh, you know, people, um, you know, sharing the posts and stuff. But perhaps it's someone that don't have social media and probably just doesn't know what to do with the tote. So maybe if you're listening and you have a big heavy-duty tote that has, um, you know, there's rain boots, rain gear, um, you know, and a lot of forestry gear, uh, be great if we could get it back. So are you leaving a number for somebody to call? And I, I assume this is no questions asked? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my son, Ryan, his um, cell phone number is 709-660-3839. He is um, in the woods working, so he definitely won't get a call. And I can leave my number as well. My name is Lori. I'm his mom. And uh, my number is 709 all right, so we have those numbers here if somebody uh, wants to uh, give you a call. Um, and hopefully he gets it back now before he heads up north. Yeah, and, I mean, his dad owns a convenience store on O'Connell Drive, Miles' Girl Cateria. And, you know, if you have the tote and uh, or, you know, maybe want to return it, um, easy drop-off maybe could be there. Okay, well, that's a great option as well. Uh, drop it off at Miles Grossateria on O'Connell Drive if you happen to uh, see it or know where it is or uh, have picked it up and, and want to get it back to the owner. I really appreciate this, uh, Laura. All the best. Uh, keep us up to date. Thanks so much for taking my call today. Alrighty. Bye. Oh, bye bye. I called her Laura, and her name is Lori. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. 
And we're back, uh, and we have lines open. Now is your chance to give us a call in the last half hour of the show. Well, as you've heard Brian Medore reporting throughout the course of the morning, the Canadian Medical Association is seeing similar trends um, related to ER closures across the country and is warning this situation in emergency rooms as part of a major problem with the medical system. Well, in part, I would imagine uh, it's related to um, healthcare workers who are finally being able to get a little bit of a break after this marathon uh, pandemic uh, scenario. Uh, Dr. Ann Collins, past president of the CMA, calls the situation unprecedented. She says many healthcare professionals have left positions in the emergency room because of the problems presented over the past two years with COVID. Dr. Collins says the pressure on the emergency room is greater now than ever because people don't have access to primary care. And we just heard um, some people mention that on the open line as well, uh, indicating that, you know, the ER is for years now, and this is years, because everything has a, 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 a cascading effect, of course. Uh, for years now, we've seen people without their family doctors require their medicines, require um, updated updates on their um, medications and that sort of thing, are forced to go to an ER to get that done. Are there better ways for that? If you don't have a family physician, if you're on uh, certain types of medicines and, and you're uh, situation is stable um, can you just get it re- redone through the pharmacy is the question I suppose part of the problem there is that you have to ensure that your situation or your medical condition is stable. Colin says the pressure on the emergency room is even greater now than ever before she says in this province in Newfoundland and Labrador it's estimated that one in five uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians do not have a family doctor. Serious situation indeed. Anyone who wants to weigh in on that is welcome to give us a call. We're going to go now to uh, line one, Elise Stewart. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. That's good. What's on your mind? Yeah, I'm, uh, I guess most folks are probably kind of seeing this the same time as me, but the recent uh, ATIP request that came out showing that the minister is responsible for women and gender equity and the minister responsible for labor haven't met on pay equity in three years. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, what what are some of the uh, I guess the difficulties in in um, addressing pay equity? I mean, what are we talking about specifically when we talk about pay equity? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of work that's already been done in other jurisdictions to address the pay equity question because it is a structural, you know, very multi-layered issue. And in this province, we had a committee that has been struck for a very long time to address what is pay equity going to look like in this province? What sort of, you know, checks and balances can we put in place? What sort of language can be added to contracts? Uh, what sort of language can exist in any way that's hired, even at the Confederation building? Um, so there's all kinds of different mechanisms that can be put in place to address this larger, you know, big question of pay equity, uh, but you have to meet to discuss those uh, those uh, solutions or those uh, different ways that you can address it. And if you're not, if you haven't met in three years, you know, that's really, I know, I think it's beyond alarming at this point. It's, it's really shameful when you have so many people in this province that were waiting on what this legislation is going to look like and waiting on what sort of uh, mechanisms are going to be put in place. So I'm sure there's a lot of folks, especially those that did a lot of work on this that are, you know, very upset right now getting that information. Well, three years would suggest it's on the back burner for sure. Um, so uh, I, don't the, I don't think it's on the stove at this point. You know, I think it's like it's in another it's in another area of the house altogether, um, which is 
is when it should be really front and center. So uh, when we talk about pay equity, though, what exactly are we talking about? What are the things that you want to see in uh, pay equity legislation specifically? Yes, specifically. So, I mean, having legislation is the first start. And usually what that, again, there's other provinces that have done this work, so you can draw on that. So a lot of what we would be looking at is that legislation that says when you hire, you know, hiring practices need to involve a pay equity lens. Uh, Any contract that comes out needs to make sure that people are being paid the same for the same work. And that seems like, oh, that's, you know, doesn't that always happen? It doesn't. You know, in this province, what we're continuing to see is that uh, women and gender diverse folks are disadvantaged. Uh, They're disadvantaged by not being offered the same level of job. They're disadvantaged by not having contracts that are as robust as other ones. So a lot of pay equity legislation is going to open up contracts, right? It will become more transparent. Everybody has to be clear about the hiring practices. And a lot of boards, too, will have to have uh, gender equity on their panels, which also helps in hiring and it helps in uh, making sure that all those decisions from the top down are having that lens applied. So a lot of uh, workplaces do have those kinds of policies, uh, you know, put into their into their um you know, um, hiring policies and, and the like. Uh, so where are some of the problem areas? Yeah, I mean, though there are definitely some that have it uh, put in their hiring practices, there are still so many areas where, where it's not applied. And it is not, if you don't have something that comes from the provincial government that dictates what you have to include in your hiring practices and what needs to be included in contracts, then a lot of people are going to fall through the cracks. So, in you know, the the equity might be made up by 50-50 or whatever, but who's at the top? Like, if you look at business in this province, who are the CEOs of major companies? Who are the VPs of major companies? What are their boards look like? Um, you know, there's also examples from certainly Scandinavian countries where anytime a board is made up at any level, like from, from a small business to a large to a extra large business, they have to have a makeup of 50-50 on that board and your VPs as well and your CEOs. So, you know, that's where we're certainly struggling is just these large you know, these large structural issues of who's getting access to these positions and who's getting a seat at the table. And pay equity is just one lever that you can use at the legislative level to address that. So what's your message then to the uh, Department of um, Women and Gender Equity? That I hope tomorrow there is a meeting on the books to address pay equity and have a concrete plan of how you're going to implement it in this province because, uh, you know, you've got a lot of explaining to do to people in this province when you put this so far back. Uh, you know, we're already now behind three extra years on a project that's taken that much longer to be uh, put forward. So I hope that they make an announcement tomorrow saying that the committee is meeting and they have a plan. And uh, the other provinces that have this type of legislation in place, um, how many are there? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, Linda, but certainly uh, Ontario and BC would be a great place to start. They, you know, they usually have a lot of these things. Um, you know, they're sometimes a little bit ahead of us in those ways uh, because of their legislative practices. So I would take a look at those provinces. You could also look, at, like I said, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, uh, Germany. They all have these um, legislative practices that can certainly guide how we're going to apply it here. Elise Stewart, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. And uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. We have some lines open. Now is your chance to give us a call. And we're back. Linda Swain in for uh, Patty Daly, who's off today. Uh, We hope to see him again uh, real soon. Uh, We are going to go to uh, Catherine. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. I'm. Do- How are you doing? Good. Good. You're enthusiastic this morning. I like it. 
<laughs> you have myself and my two friends, Emily Finch and Michael O'Keefe. Um, so we make up a trumpet trio called Trio Lyrical. Cool. And yeah. uh, what are you doing? <laughs> We're just calling in to promote a concert that we have coming up. We're performing uh, for the first time since coming home to St. John's on Saturday as part of the Sound Symposium at the Anglican Cathedral at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And there's some great concerts and events all week long with people from all over the country. Oh, man, trumpets in the Anglican Cathedral. I can hear it now. <gasps> <laughs> We're very excited. We're playing all new uh brand new pieces uh they're all world premieres uh all by canadian composers two newfoundland composers yep so they're by um a friend and colleague of ours robert humber he's from uh the west coast of the island and aiden sacry uh aiden hardery sorry he's uh based in grand falls and then uh, toronto composer anthony st pierre um so yeah we're really looking forward to playing together again um yeah, yeah. Is this your first time uh, participating in the Sound Symposium? It is as a trio, yeah. This is the first time. Fantastic. I want your names again. We started with Catherine. Catherine? Catherine Moffat. Catherine Moffat and? Emily Finch. Emily Finch. And Michael O'Keefe. And Michael O'Keefe. And you're the trumpet trio? Trio Lyrical is our name. As trio a group. Lyrical. Yeah. So what uh, attracted you to the trumpet, Catherine? I'll start with you. Um, I started playing trumpet in uh, grade four in school. And there was, I guess, just a little uh, assembly where we heard all of the instruments being played. And trumpet was a no-brainer for me. I just loved the sound of the instrument. uh, And I did it in school all through grade 12. And then we all decided to keep going with it in music school. yeah, but I guess the sound of it is kind of what um, uh, attracted me to the instrument. <laughs> it's not an easy instrument to play. If anybody has ever held a trumpet to their uh, mouths and tried to make that beautiful sound, it's not that easy. It takes a certain amount of skill, obviously, and that pursing of the lips that's required. <laughs> and not all of us are Dizzy Gillespie, but um, <laughs> um, who's your favorite uh, trumpet performer? Um, oh goodness. Um, is it in the classical realm, the jazz realm, the rock realm? I would say my favorite trumpet performer is a class- classical trumpet, Allison, ca- classical trumpeter, Allison uh, Balsam. She's U- in a bass in the UK. Oh, cool. Uh, what about the rest of you? I'm going to have the second with Catherine on that one. I really like uh, orchestral trumpet players, so I listen a lot to the, the trumpet players who play in the Berlin Phil and some other orchestras like that. But there's just so many good brass players in European orchestras, so it's hard to narrow them down. Oh, for sure. And, uh, of course, we do have a, a, a brass, if you will, um, tradition here in Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly in Maine, uh, where they still have a brass band there that's just amazing uh, and a great tradition there um, as well. Uh, so uh, you're going to be performing for the first time, you say, this Saturday? Yeah. First time since we, we've all, we're all from St. John's, all currently living in other provinces, but we're performing for the first time since coming back to St. John's together on Saturday at 3, yeah, at the Anglican Cathedral. Fantastic. And is there a, a, a charge to get in there? There is. I can't exactly remember how much. I it believe is. it's 15 for adults, 10 for students. 
fabulous and lots of space of course for people to come in and um what do you like about performing in that kind of a of a space like the anglican cathedral in particular which is so uh, i guess acoustically yummy (laughs) i think you just hit the nail on the head it's all about the acoustics and and the sort of ability to hear each other and in that acoustic makes it easier to play as an ensemble i think than playing in sort of a dry room without a kind of reverberation mm-hmm. yeah that resonance it it rings it rings yeah um and and do you play uh, primarily in um like syncopation or in harmony how how does that work a little bit of everything we've got some very rhythmical pieces that we're going to be putting on the program but then we have some more lyrical stuff there's uh some, there's another piece that is quite free, so there's some improvising in it. Uh, yeah, we have a yeah. good, a good diverse program, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm welcome back. First of all, welcome back to St. John's and and performing your trumpet. Uh, sorry, your trio lyrica. Lyrical. Lyrical. Um, And uh, so a lot of people who enjoy brass, and uh, I've always said I I love a good (laughs) horn section in a musical piece. I think it always brings it up uh, a couple of notches. Um, I'm a big exile on Main Street fan, so I'm thinking about that kind of of, um, sound, you know, if you know what I mean. But um, uh, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much and all the best, and hopefully you'll get a big turnout at the Anglican cathedral this saturday thank you so much thank you have a good all right, bye-bye. And uh, wow, what great energy they all have. Uh, and I'm sure that that's going to translate into their uh, performances. You can hear the joy in their voices, and that's just uh, fabulous. I'm a bit of a music nerd, as you can probably pick out. Uh, but anyway, um, I want to thank everybody for their contributions this morning. The lines have sort of eased up, so uh, if we don't get a call in the next moment or two, we are going to probably uh, go out with a musical interlude uh, Uh, as uh, Dave Williams would say. We've had a lot of good conversation this morning about health care, about the ongoing pandemic situation, uh, and uh, let's be clear, it's still ongoing. It's not over. A lot of people behaving as if it's over, and of course it's uh, spreading widely now in the community because we're all getting out and finally being able to interact and the the like, but we have to be cautious as well, I suppose, is the the bottom line there. We do have some calls coming in, so I'll just uh, wait for Dave to line them up. Uh, Marie, you're on the line. Hi, Marie. Oh, hi. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Uh, I'm wondering uh, if I could ask the public if someone may have picked up a key ring containing a Dodge key fob, a house key, mailbox key. There's an optimum tab on it and a triangle tab. Tab. Uh, it was lost in on Friday the 15th in the Avalon Mall, Scotia Bank area. Uh, I parked very close to the mall area adjacent to Thorben Road, uh, went to the bank, did my business, went back to the car, and no key. Oh, dear. Did you, uh, did you check with um, the mall administration? Yes, I actually retraced my steps, and um, 
reported it to the bank, of course, and checked around the instant teller where I had been prior to going into the bank. Then I went to the mall administration, reported everything, because I had to leave my car there and gave the license plate number and everything, but I haven't gotten any response. Oh, dear. Well, we hope that somebody's picked it up, a, a, a set of keys, including a Dodge fob and a house key and a few other items, lost around Friday the 15th at the Avalon Mall near the Scotiabank entrance there. Uh, anyone who may have picked that up, um, Dave's got your number? Uh, no, I didn't leave a number, but I can uh, give it now. It's um, 682-1465. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's seen that uh, or has picked it up, they can pass it on to you through that number, 682-1465. Yes, and I, I'm in an absolute dilemma now because I can't find, well, I lost this fob, but I can't find the other fob. Oh, so no. You're grounded. It's I'm grounded. I'm in a mess. <laughs> oh, dear. I, oh, I can only imagine. Well, Marie, hopefully we get that key uh, ring back to you. Uh, all the best. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we're going to speak now with uh, Paul Toomey, Executive Director, Eating Disorder Foundation. Hello, Paul. Hi, Linda. How are you this morning? Great. And yourself? I couldn't be better. Another nice morning, but a drop of rain in, across the city in different places, and I know my lawn can use it. Oh, for sure. It freshen things up a bit. For sure. And the reason I'm calling this morning is uh, our bingo. Uh, first, I want to thank you. Two weeks ago, if you recall, I put out a, an urgent request that uh, our bingo was in a bit of trouble and we needed people to turn out. And I got to tell you, the last two weeks, people have turned out and we will be continuing our bingo for the rest of the summer. So happy to hear that. Yeah, it, it's, it's a big relief. I can tell you that uh, we, we were in a, in a deep hole and we're climbing out of it more quickly than we got in it. So if people continue to support us. That's great. The main reason I'm calling is that uh, our bingo, bingo is normally held on Wednesday evenings. Well, this week we've been preempted at the Jack Byrne Arena due to the Benjamin Circus. But we are going to have bingo Sunday afternoon make up for it this week so our gates will open at two o'clock and bingo start at three uh on sunday afternoon and no bingo tomorrow night okay important for people to know that because they might be showing up and instead they'll see all the clowns (laughs) (laughs) which is not a bad thing either (laughs) well it's another great event in the community so um uh, we, we certainly weren't uh didn't mind giving up giving up our time and space to, to bring some, some more new entertainment in for uh, for the people of, uh, of the Avalon area of the province. Sure. So drive-in bingo at the um, Jack, Jack Burn Arena in Torbay is moved to Sunday afternoon to accommodate uh, the, the circus. Uh, so that's going to take place uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, doors or gates open at 2 and bingo starts at 3 Sunday afternoon. Yep, and then we'll be back to our regular Wednesday night next week, the 27th. Paul, I appreciate your call. Thanks so much, and uh, all the best. Thank you, Linda. Same to you. All righty. Bye-bye. And uh, we have uh, some rain in the forecast, and we've seen a little tiny bit of rain. Very welcomed indeed. So uh, let's go out with a little bit of Eurythmics. Here comes the rain again.